Well, this will be the first tangent episode, uh, so-called because it doesn't really continue the podcast's main narrative. Instead, as the name implies, they're just going to be there to provide some additional context that listeners might find interesting or honestly in order to just jump down a rabbit hole that I personally thought was fascinating or fun enough to be worth sharing. I'm still ironing out the details of how I want things to go with this podcast, but I'll probably make the tangent episodes a reward for Patreon subscribers. Even if I do end up going that route, though, this one is going to be a freebie. Also, I should probably note that because I'm relying on the source heavily for this one, all the information and quotes are from the F.A. Wright translation of the complete works of Liuprand of Cremona from 1930. So we got a taste of the acid from Liuprand's pen in the first episode, as he railed against Pope John XII, a.k.a. the young pope. But I felt like listeners didn't get enough of the Henri Bishop, if such a thing is possible. So I thought for this tangent episode, I'd delve into two further highlights from Leopold's career as a medieval muckraker. He went after not only King Berengar II of Italy, but Berengar's wife, Willa of Tuscany. Berengar wasn't a big fan of Willa's mother either, saying she, quote, rendered it possible for her mother not to be the worst woman ever born. Still, according to Leoprand, Willa the Elder's worst sin was just greed. On the other hand, Willa the Younger didn't just commit adultery, but committed adultery with a priest. Leoprand writes, She had in her service as chaplain a priestling named Dominic, a fellow of short stature and swarthy complexion, boorish, hairy, intractable, rough, shaggy, wild, uncouth, fond of mad strife, with a wanton, tail-like appendage. Dominic regularly went to Willa's bedchamber, allegedly. But then a dog he didn't expect to come across in the room started barking, waking everyone up. The dog also bit the priest several times. The guards and servants woken up by the dog caught Dominic before he could escape. To save her skin, Willa accused Dominic of coming after her maids, which Dominic did not deny. Still, to cover her bases, Willa plotted to have him killed. Berengar heard the gossip over this episode and began to suspect that his wife was Dominic's real objective. However, Leoprend even suggests Willa might have used witchcraft to get Berengar to believe her story, but he does, in fairness, admit that he doesn't know if it was that or, quote, Berengar's weakness. Either way, Dominic was castrated, and Leoprend can't help but add this one detail. Those who turned the priest into a eunuch declare there was good reason for the love his mistress bore him. His tool, they discovered, was worthy of Priapus himself. Uh, for those of you who aren't mythology buffs, Priapus was a Roman god who was known for having a fairly sizable phallus. 
Judging from Dominic's name, he was of likely native Italian ancestry, which I think gives the story an element of Germanic pride and anti-Italian bias. But a bit more on that later. Incidentally, Willa was imprisoned along with her husband. After he died, she ended up in a Bavarian convent, although it isn't clear if it was her choice or not. Certainly, Leoprend gleefully makes it sound like Willa was always Berengar's partner in crime. But let's move on to Leoprend's relationship with the Byzantine Empire. At first, it was actually quite amicable. Back when Leoprend was just a deacon and was working for Berengar, who was still king of Italy, he was sent as part of a diplomatic mission to Constantinople. The reigning emperor was Constantine VII. Although Leoprend only had a bit role in the embassy, he was impressed, even delighted, by the reception he received at Constantine's court and awed at what he saw. Before the emperor's seat stood a tree made of bronze gilded over, whose branches were filled with birds, also made of gilded bronze, which uttered different cries, each according to its varying species. The throne itself was so marvelously fashioned that at one moment it seemed a low structure, and at another it rose high into the air. It was of immense size and was guarded by lions, made either of bronze or of wood covered with gold, who beat the ground with their tails and gave a dreadful roar with open mouth and quivering tongue. Leaning upon the shoulders of two eunuchs, I was brought into the emperor's presence. At my approach, the lions began to roar and the birds to cry out, each according to its kind. But I was neither terrified nor surprised, but I had previously made inquiry about all these things from people who were well acquainted with them. So after I had three times made obeisance to the emperor with my face to the ground, I lifted my head, and behold, the man whom just before I had seen sitting on a moderately elevated seat had now changed his raiment and was sitting on the level of the ceiling. How it was done I could not imagine, unless perhaps he was lifted up by some such sort of device as we use for raising the timbers of a wine press. Years later in 968, Leoprand would return to Constantinople this time leading his own embassy, and now as a representative of Emperor Otto I. Also, by this time, Constantine VII was dead, and had eventually been succeeded by his grandsons, Basil II and Constantine VIII, as co-emperors. Because the two emperors were still very young children, and their father Romanos had died, their mother, Theophano, felt she had to secure her and her children's position by marrying a popular general and making him another co-emperor as Nikephorus II. Leoprend was sent to Nikephorus's court in order to quell the growing tensions between the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire by arranging a marriage between Otto's son and heir, the future Otto II, and a bride from the imperial family. While Leoprend covered his previous trip to Constantinople in his own book of history, while Leoprend covered his previous trip to Constantinople in his own book of history, we know about this second trip from a long surviving letter 
he wrote back to Emperor Otto I and Empress Adelaide. He starts by writing, On the 4th of June, we arrived at Constantinople. We were given the most miserable and disgusting quarters. The palace where we were confined was certainly large and open, but it neither kept out the cold nor afforded us shelter from the heat. To add to our troubles, the Greek wine we found undrinkable because of the mixture in it of pitch, resin, and plaster. The house itself had no water, and we couldn't even buy any to quench our thirst. All this was a serious, oh dear me, but there was another, oh dear me, even worse. And that was our warden, the man who provided us with our daily wants. If you were to seek another like him, you certainly would not find him on earth. He might perhaps in hell. Like a raging torrent, he poured upon us every calamity, every extortion, every expense, every grief, and every misery that he could invent. Right away, Leoprand and Leo jump into a huge squabble over Otto's claims on the title of Emperor of the Romans. This leads into a duel over semantics. He called you not Emperor, which is Bezaleus in his tongue, but insultingly Rex, which is king in ours. I told him that the thing meant was the same, though the word was different. And he then said that I had not come to make peace but to stir up strife. Finally, he got up in a rage, and really wishing to insult us, received your letter not in his own hand, but through an interpreter. As for Emperor Nick Kephorus II himself, he had been a fairly successful emperor who helped contribute to the restoration of the empire's fortunes that made the era of the reigning imperial dynasty, the Macedonian dynasty, one of the long-standing empire's golden ages. Nicephorus retook the islands of Crete and Cyprus and made so many successful campaigns against the Arab rulers of the Middle East, he became known as the White Death of the Saracens. But you wouldn't know any of that from Leoprand's description of him. He is a monstrosity of a man, a dwarf, fat-headed, and with tiny mole's eyes, disfigured by a short, broad, thick beard, half going gray, disgraced by a neck scarcely an inch long, pig-like, by reason of the big, close bristles on his head, in color, an Ethiopian, and, as the poet Juvenal says, you would not like to meet him in the dark. A big belly, a lean posterior, very long in the hip considering his short stature, small legs, fair-sized heels and feet, dressed in a robe made of fine linen, but old, foul-smelling, and discolored by age, bold of tongue, a fox by nature, and perjury and falsehood of Ulysses. My lords and august emperors, you always seemed comely to me, but how much more comely now? And Leoprin goes on like that. You can't help but love how seamlessly he goes from insults to complimenting his bosses. Now I should point out that we really can't know if Leoprand was really as combative as he portrays himself in his letters. In fact, it isn't unreasonable at all to guess he was exaggerating his behavior in order to please Otto, especially since later, as we'll see, the Byzantines wouldn't hesitate to imprison 
or even kill ambassadors who really offended them. That said, though, there is a ring of authenticity in the arguments that Leoprene gets into with Nikephorus. For just one example, Nikephorus accuses Otto of usurping Berengar's throne and taking over Rome. Leoprene counters that, to the contrary, Otto freed Rome and northern Italy from a tyrant. Then he goes on the offensive. Your power, methinks, was asleep then, and the power of your predecessors, who in name alone are called emperors of the Romans, while the reality is far different. If they were powerful, if they were emperors of the Romans, why did they allow Rome to be in the hands of harlots? Leoprene goes on to assert Italy is no longer part of Nikephorus's empire. Instead, he refers to Nikephorus as Otto's, quote, brother ruler. Next, they move into an argument about their empire's respective armies, leading Nikephorus to blurt out, quote, you are not Romans, but Lombards. Of course, Leoprene apparently did not hesitate to fire back. History tells us that Romulus, from whom the Romans got their name, was a fratricide born in adultery. He made a place of refuge for himself and received into it insolvent debtors, runaway slaves, murderers, and men who deserved death for their crimes. This was the sort of crowd whom he enrolled as citizens and gave them the name of Romans. From this nobility are descended those men whom you style rulers of the world, but we Lombards, Saxons, Franks, Lopharingians, Bavarians, Swabians, and Burgundians so despise these fellows that when we are angry with an enemy, we can find nothing more insulting to say than you Roman. For us, in the word Roman, is comprehended every form of lowness, timidity, avarice, luxury, falsehood, and vice. Now, I've been avoiding getting into too much commentary because, honestly, there's a lot to unpack here. And I don't want this to turn into a whole series. But in the interest of our main narrative, it's interesting to see a kind of nationalism developing here. Leoprend identifies the various Germanic peoples, but he also attributes to them a shared history and set of characteristics. Not only that, but he also draws a harsh distinction between the descendants of the former peoples of the Roman Empire and the Germans. Uh, this kind of complicated nationalism is something that we're going to see with the Italians of the later Middle Ages. Anyway, after this, Leoprin falls sick, which he naturally blames on the conditions in his guest house. Leo visits him and says that they will agree to the marriage if Otto hands over the city of Ravenna and the territories of Capua and Benevento, whose current rulers the Byzantines consider rebellious vassals. Leoprend is offended by any implication that any Italian territory should be ceded to the Byzantines. Even worse, so is when an ambassador from Bulgaria is given precedence over him during a banquet. Leoprend indignantly notes that not only should his emperor be considered superior to the Tsar of Bulgaria, but that Bulgaria had only been a Christian nation for a generation. In fact, 
Leoprand is so indignant, he threatens to storm out of the chamber. The Byzantines retaliate by forcing Leoprand to dine with the emperor's servants. Even though Leoprand is still sick, or so he claims, Nicephorus forces him to travel to meet him at a residence outside Constantinople. Nicephorus again accuses Emperor Otto of trying to assert illegitimate claims on Italian territories that rightfully belong to the Byzantines. Leoprand's temper again breaks out when Nicephorus goes on to suggest that Otto should turn his back if the Byzantines just so happen to invade Capua and Benevento. Leoprand flat out tells Nicephorus that that would lead to a war because the rulers of Benevento and Capua are actually Emperor Otto's vassals, not his. Yet another tense diplomatic moment arises when Nicephorus receives a letter from the Pope, urging friendship between the Emperor of the Greeks and the Emperor of the Romans. This time, it's the Byzantines' turn to be offended and enraged. On other points, I have often shown a fine and copious flow of words. On this, I am as dumb as a fish. The Greeks abused the sea, cursed the waves, and wondered exceedingly how they could have transported such an iniquity, and why the deep had not opened up to swallow the ship. The audacity of it, they cried, to call the universal emperor of the Romans the one and only Nicephorus, the great, the august emperor of the Greeks, and the style, a poor, barbaric creature, emperor of the Romans. O sky, O earth, O sea, what shall we do with these scoundrels and criminals? They are paupers, and if we kill them, we pollute our hands with vow blood. They are ragged, they are slaves, they are peasants. If we beat them, we disgrace not them but ourselves. They're not worthy of our gilded Roman scourge, or of any punishment of that kind. Leoprand actually gets scared that he will be executed, but instead he is imprisoned along with the papal emissaries. Leoprand is put in the awkward position of defending the Pope's language. He argues that the Pope was just confused because the Byzantines had adopted Greek, not Latin, as their official language years ago. In his mind, though, Leoprand agrees with the Pope's original distinction and sees himself as tricking the Byzantines, instead of just trying to sweep things over the way a diplomat ideally would. Leoprand was still kept under house arrest, though, even though his arguments did flatter the Byzantines to an extent. Worse in Leoprand's mind, they even confiscated five pieces of purple cloth that Leoprand and the other diplomats had purchased. Purple had long been considered the color of imperial dignity and was often restricted. Leoprand counters to the Byzantines that people in Italy and Germany have no problem buying purple cloth normally. It makes the point that where he's from, even prostitutes and astrologers wear purple. The Byzantines vow that they will crack down on this apparent black market in purple cloth. This inspires another insult-slash-compliment from Leoprand. How improper and insulting that these soft, effeminate creatures, with their long hair and hoods and bonnets, idle liars of neither gender, 
should go about in purple, while heroes like yourselves, men of courage, skilled in war, full of faith and love, submissive to God, Leoprand is eventually freed and given permission to return. Also, he is given two letters, one for the emperor and one for the pope. The Byzantines are courteous with their farewells, Leoprand admits, but he is quick to add that the Byzantines only gave them enough horses for themselves, but not enough for their baggage, and so the entire embassy had to pay for the extra transportation on their own. On his way out the door for good, though, Leoprand actually writes a poem, etching it out on the wall of his gatehouse and on a wooden table. Trust not the Greeks, they live but to betray, nor heed their promises, whatever they say. If lies will serve them, any oath they swear, and when it's time to break it, feel no fear. The poem goes on to predict the inevitable military victory the Germans would have over the Byzantines. Anyway, even if you have just a little bit of interest in the Middle Ages, the works of Leoprand of Cremona is one of the more fun primary sources you can jump into. Also, if you ever hear of anyone complaining about the lack of civility in politics today, well, just point them toward old Leoprand. We'll get back to the main narrative and wrap up the prelude chapter next week as we talk about the history of the Republic of Florence and some old-fashioned class war. Thanks for listening, and buona notte.